Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Today we're taking a look at how our transportation profiles have changed during the pandemic and what might happen next. And stick around after the interview. Climate scientist Dr. Christy Dahl is here to tell us just how abnormal our climate has become. Pre-pandemic, and for the past 15 years, I've been living in a seaside town about 30 miles away from where I work. Luckily, the distance by water is a lot shorter. When the commuter ferry is running, I can hop on a boat and let someone else get me to Boston with no traffic, while I admire the view. However, when the ferry isn't running, I get stuck in traffic in one of the most congested metro regions in the country. With some workspaces and schools that were previously closed reopening, and people who have the flexibility to work remotely wondering what's next, I keep seeing the same statistic that commuting is bad for your health. According to some studies, it's linked to higher rates of stress and depression. From my own personal experience, now that I haven't had to get on I-93 to work in more than a year, I concur. My commute was stressful, and my life is better without it, though I do miss my colleagues. But just because I've been off the roads doesn't mean that we've all been off the roads. Transportation, from ferries and trains to cars and 18-wheelers, has been affected in unprecedented ways by COVID-19 and by how we've adapted to it. I'm lucky to be joined today by my colleague Elizabeth Irvin, a senior transportation analyst with the Union of Concerned Scientists. We discuss the many ways that the last year plus has changed the way we get around, us and our stuff, and what needs to happen so that transportation is sustainable, safe, and equitable for all. Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Good morning. It's great to be here. So there have been some major shifts in transportation patterns, as we've seen in the past year due to the pandemic. What are some of the changes that you've made to your routines? The biggest change in my routine has been in my commute. I live in Chicago, and I used to ride the train about an hour each way to downtown. And now I walk to my desk in the space where the coat rack used to be by the front door in our apartment. We didn't have a car for the first half of the pandemic, and I did a lot of large grocery trips on bicycle. And then in the second half and around June, we borrowed a car from my partner's parents so that my partner could get to a job that wasn't transit accessible. And since we've borrowed it, we've shifted our non-work trips to larger, fewer grocery trips rather than running around the corner to get whatever I need for that night's dinner. Uh, and I'm curious, what is, what's changed about your travel patterns? Well, you know, my travel patterns, actually, they've changed quite a bit. I, I live in the Boston area, and I live out sort of on a little peninsula in the harbor. So we have a commuter boat. So I would do a combination of some days I'd drive, some days I'd take the commuter boat and then hop on the um, train to get into the office. And since the pandemic, I've probably, I can probably count on two hands the number of times I've actually driven my car. And my partner's working from home as well. So we've realized that we don't even need two cars anymore. And, you know, that has really got me to thinking about what trends you've been seeing, because with everyone's individual situation, I'm kind of wondering how it all sums up into the, the bigger picture. Well, I think 
both of our answers point to one really critical thing to keep in mind, which is that we have to keep a we have to think about our transportation system as a whole. Often when people think about the transportation system, either they they just automatically default to thinking about public transit, trains and buses, or they think about just their own cars and the highway system. And what both of our stories show is that those systems are very connected. Um, passenger cars, transit, biking, ferries, and the movement of stuff, as well as the movement of people. And what we've really seen during the pandemic is that it's turned up the volume on a lot of trends and problems with our transportation system that were already happening. And it's highlighted some of the inequities that exist in our transportation system. So I'm just going to run through some sort of overall stats, sort of the the bird's eye view of the high-level trends that have happened uh, in these various modes over the pandemic. Yeah, that would be really great because I think I think you're right. We're thinking about our individual sort of piecemeal and not the whole picture. So um, go for it. And I should just mention that a lot of these statistics come from the Bureau of Transportation Statistics. This is a federal website that's done a really great job of aggregating these in a in a website that folks can take a look at and see and explore. So to start out with passenger cars, mileage really bottomed out in late March and April at about 50% of normal volume. But it was actually, it bounced back pretty quickly. It was back up to about 80 or 90% of normal travel by the middle of June, which I think is maybe surprising for folks who think it's, you know, so was still lower for a longer time. That's really surprising to me. I would not have have guessed that. Do you, do you have any thoughts about why? Um, well, and actually, just one other thing to mention is that actually in March, passenger vehicle travel started exceeding the historic baseline. So it's it's above normal travel um, for for this March and April. And I think what's happening is. And, and there's a couple of studies that are older that, that look at this a, a bit, but even though people's commute trips for, for people who don't have to go into an office every day or drive to work the way they used to, they're replacing those work trips with other kinds of trips. In transportation planning, we often call trips where you make multiple stops tours. So a trip where you go to work and then on the way home, you stop at the grocery store or maybe on your way into work, you stop and drop off a kid at school. It's the most efficient way to get all your stuff done, both from your perspective, from saving time and from a sort of system perspective in terms of saving miles and saving emissions. Without that work trip, people are still making a lot of those other smaller trips. And so we're not seeing as big a savings from telecommuting as you might intuitively think. Interesting. Yeah. So rather than bundling all your chores and everything in that one trip, now you're doing those separately. So what else are you seeing? So as I mentioned at the beginning, it's important to think not just about how people move, but about how things move. And one thing that has stuck out is that truck travel has stayed basically constant throughout the pandemic. You know, I had it in my head when I was um, just checking this data that we'd see you know, an increase in truck traffic. That's what I would have thought too, because I have ordered more deliveries since um, since we've been home. And I think that is very true. And, and we've seen 
increasingly people shifting to ordering more things online. But I think in the beginning of the pandemic, the trucks were really the only thing on the road. And so it made it seem like there was way, way more of them. But it's we've got sort of the same number of truckers doing the doing a lot of work, which explains why we've seen some delays in shipping times. They've been working really, really hard throughout the pandemic. Air travel took an early and steep dive. The number of people screened at airports in April 2020 was under a million weekly, which is about 6% of normal. And has been more gradual to recover, though we are starting to see folks coming back to taking flights both domestically and internationally. International travel was obviously harder hit, but we're even starting to see some more international flights scheduled over the last couple of months. One other thing to mention about, actually to jump back to the to the road side of things for a minute, research came out at the end of March that in the first half of 2020, when traffic declined, when there were a lot fewer cars on the road, the number of pedestrians killed in car crashes increased by 20%. So fewer cars, more fatal car crashes which is a huge problem, obviously. Are there any, any thoughts about why? Well, the hypothesis that is that this is partly the more car crashes were caused because traffic declined. We often, when we're talking about our roadways, act like the most important thing we can do in investing in transportation is reducing congestion. But actually, slow speeds keep people safe. And so... In places where there were fewer people on the road, people started speeding up. And in in cases where those roads weren't really meant for people to be driving, you know, 40 and 50 miles per hour, that resulted in more fatal car crashes that disproportionately affected pedestrians and, and cyclists, but, you know, also have safety implications for drivers themselves. And this is one of those places where, as I said up front, this is the pandemic is is foregrounding trends that were happening beforehand. One thing we've seen in decades of research is that communities of color and low-income communities tend to have more fatal bike and pedestrian crashes. And one reason why is that in a lot of these neighborhoods, the speeds on the roads through them are higher. And that's partly, it's a combination of factors. It's partly because a lot of these neighborhoods have experienced declining population over the years. So the roads were designed for more cars to pass through. And so when there are fewer cars on the road, people start driving faster. And another reason is that a lot of these roads were designed to get people through those communities rather than really to serve the people in them. So, you know, roads connecting suburbs to to downtown, for example. So they were designed to move people quickly and don't necessarily have the sidewalks and the, the crossings or the protected bike lanes um, that wealthier communities have. What have you seen in terms of public transportation? That's a big one. So in transit, ridership fell as much as 80% and has still not recovered. We're still about 60 or 70% lower than usual. And it's really important to note that these declines are not even across the board. Rail ridership overall has been slower to rebound than bus ridership. And in cities around the country, we've seen significant geographic disparities between who's continuing to ride transit and who's staying home. The people who've kept riding are the people who can't work work from home. You know, grocery workers, medical professionals, and, and I'm not just talking about doctors and nurses, but also, you know, custodial crews and other people who keep hospitals running. And ridership reductions 
have been really concentrated in those in, in transportation planning. We often call them the peaks, commute peaks. So that's the, the morning rush and the evening rush when lots of white collar workers are traveling kind of all at the same time to jobs that are concentrated in sort of downtown areas or commercial business districts, those kinds of things. And where we've seen ridership stay more constant is at you know the middle of the day, in the evening, at times when service was already a little lower. And these ridership reductions mean a huge reduction in revenue for transit agencies, which is why it's so important that federal COVID relief packages over the last year have included funding for transit agencies so that they can keep providing service, particularly keep the service that is, and in some cases actually focus on and improve the service that's being used most by the people who are continuing to ride. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, PRX, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript, a full bio of our guest, and more resources, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like the podcast, there are a couple of ways you can help us. First, you can subscribe. It's free and easy. Just click on the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Another way to help is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with us, check us out on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. What have you seen in terms of, of ride hailing with Uber and Lyft? Yeah, so so ride hailing is the term that transportation folks use to talk about Uber and Lyft. You'll sometimes hear people call it ride sharing, which I personally don't like using because it People aren't often sharing a ride, but we're talking about Uber and Lyft and some of those other companies where you use your phone to uh, to get a car to come to you. And those experience really dramatic ridership declines on par with transit, really. Uber and Lyft reported ridership dropping between 70 and 80% in that same sort of early part of the pandemic. And part of that was also that Uber and Lyft suspended, and they're still, still suspended, the the ride-sharing part of their services. So the Uber pool, the Lyft lines, they've really um, are just focused on, you know, for safety reasons, only having, you know, one passenger or one family, you know, group of riders in the vehicle at a time. What's been interesting to see about Uber and Lyft ridership, which is similar to what we've seen in transit, is that declines haven't been uniform. Some places kept taking Uber and Lyft, and and in particular, lower-income users kept using ride hailing during the pandemic for some of the same reasons they were continuing to take public transit. Folks who either don't have a car or don't have access to one, folks who use public transit for most of their trips but have some that they just really can't make work with the transit that's available to them, people who live in places that where the, the transit access um, isn't quite good enough for, for people to meet all their daily needs through biking and walking in transit, but who don't have enough income to own a car. So we've seen those trips continue, whereas the bulk of Uber and Lyft trips are concentrated in the sort of afternoon, evening hours. And there are a lot of folks you know, stopping for drinks with coworkers on their way home or going to entertainment. Those kinds of trips have understandably not happened during the pandemic. 
There's one more trend I wanted to mention, which is bike and scooters, what transportation planners often call micromobility, which is just a fancy word for biking and scooters. And the sharing services, so things like your city's bike share or some of the companies that were doing shared scooters shut down temporarily in the beginning of the pandemic. And a lot of them reopened over the summer. And by the end of the summer and early fall, some systems were seeing higher ridership than before the pandemic. So is there any way to figure out which of these trends will continue? That is absolutely the million-dollar question. And it's something that transportation experts around the country have been talking about, wondering about, trying to figure out how to study since February or March. And, you know, trying to understand both the immediate impact of COVID on on travel and what it means in the long term. And especially in the beginning, a lot of those conversations were quite speculative because we didn't have a lot of data. And I've already walked through a bit of, you know, the data that has started to come out since March. You know, a lot of this data has a lag. So we've we've been learning these things really in the last three to six months. We've started to get a good picture of what has really happened with transportation during the pandemic. And it's going to take us a little longer to figure out what will happen after. But there are some researchers who are doing some really great work to try to fill in some of those that picture. And you know, the data that I've walked through is kind of the bird's eye view in a lot of ways. It's looking at the system as a whole. And really, we should come back to as much as we can how transportation is affecting individual people. Let's talk for a minute about President Biden's infrastructure plan. What do you find most promising about the plan? Well, I think the thing that I am most encouraged about is the way the administration has been talking about the system as a whole. To, to go back to something I said right up front, we can't just pick out one mode and focus on that and think that we're addressing the problems with the transportation system. We really need to think about how transit and personal cars and freight and biking and walking and safety, how those things all intersect. People aren't just drivers. They're also all pedestrians. So the proposals that we're seeing so far are really focused on the system as a whole. And one thing that's my particular nerdy favorite is a focus on doing a better job of measuring the right things. So measuring things like access to jobs, measuring things like greenhouse gas emissions in terms of deciding where we make our investments in the transportation system, rather than focusing everything on how is this investment going to reduce congestion. The big measures that are important in a lot of transportation planning efforts are, you know, congested vehicle hours traveled or vehicle throughput is another really common one. How many cars can you get through an intersection in a certain amount of time? And that is something that's easy to measure, but is not necessarily measuring the thing that makes the biggest difference in people's lives. And so there's been a real push to improve how we make decisions and make those decisions with less emphasis on building more and expanding our roads and focusing on how do we fix what we already have? How do we make really strategic investments in our infrastructure that help the most people? And one piece of that 
is investing in zero emissions technology. So the Biden administration has set a goal that American-built buses, for example, are zero emissions by 2030. So that's in addition to focusing on you know, passenger car electrification, making sure that our that our bus system, which goes through a lot of areas with really significant air quality issues, is contributing to the solution rather than putting more diesel pollution in the air. I'm glad you mentioned that one because that's my favorite one on the list. I love the idea of electric buses, school buses. I just think it would make such a difference in quality of life. Yeah, buses are really, really important. And we've touched on them in a couple of different ways. And so I mentioned that bus ridership has rebounded more quickly than rail ridership. Buses are a more flexible form of public transportation. So it's easier to change the route as you learn more about who's using it, as development patterns change. You know, when you put a rail line down, you're not you're not going to shift where the stops are. And it's also a mode where operations funding is really, really critical. So it's really important that the Biden administration is focused on not just, you know, increasing funding for transit electrification, but also increasing funding for transit service to make sure that bus service actually works in the places that it has the biggest potential to help. As I mentioned before, one of the key things that's really important to ridership. One is land use. So you need enough density around public transit to make so that there's enough ridership to support the route. But the other thing that's really critical is frequency of service. It's really hard for people to plan their lives around a bus that comes every 45 minutes, for example. And if you miss it, then you're then you're waiting and or or you're calling an Uber or Lyft, right? And so being able to increase frequency is really important to making service that works well for folks. And there's a couple of great organizations out there that have been really focused on both evaluating the impact of the pandemic on transit and and bus ridership and also advocating for some of these improvements. And one that I just wanted to give a shout out to um, is an organization called Transit Center that has been doing really, really great work in the space for, for years and has been leading the charge on some of these recommendations. Elizabeth, this has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you for joining me. And maybe we can get together in, you know, I don't know, eight months for a check-in to see what we're seeing at that point. I'd love to. This is an area that's always changing. And I love working in transportation because it's something that everyone experiences in their daily lives. And even if you're not an expert in it, in the sort of overall forces, everyone has sort of opinions about how their transportation system could work better. So I'm excited to keep focusing on this and talking more about this in the months and years ahead. Great. Well, thank you. Now it's time for a short segment with my fab colleague and senior climate scientist, Dr. Christy Dahl. She talks about what quote unquote normal means in the context of our climate today. And this may sound strange, But what she describes makes me think of my cat, Iris. As far as I know, Iris doesn't talk. That means she can't tell me if something's wrong and she needs to go to the vet. Cats are very good at hiding their illnesses. So for me to be able to tell when Iris is sick, I have to know what she's like when she's not sick. And when her behavior deviates from the norm, more often than not, I know she needs to go to the kitty doctor. But what if Iris never does anything normal? 
What if she goes on a hunger strike one day, eats my shoes the next, meows a chromatic scale, and then climbs the curtains? What baseline behavior do I have to compare to? Unfortunately, our climate right now is acting like a very strange cat, with fewer and fewer quote-unquote norms to compare future changes with. And with that, I think I'll let the actual scientist explain. Christy, it's all yours. Thanks, Colleen. I hope Iris is needing your shoes. So what does the word normal mean these days in relation to our climate? We can turn to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, for some framing. So every 10 years, NOAA produces a set of what are called, quote-unquote, climate normals. You can think of them as average climate conditions over the previous 30 years. But despite their name, the latest NOAA update makes it clear that the conditions we're living with are not normal. Until May of 2021, the 30-year averages that scientists used spanned the years from 1981 through 2010, which is basically the climate that millennials grew up with. The new 30-year averages step forward in time to the childhood years of Gen Z, representing conditions from 1991 through 2020. And through that new lens, much of the United States is now significantly more than one degree Fahrenheit warmer than the 20th century average. So our climate is hotter than it has been for the last 120 years. The climate science community has long used the terminology of quote-unquote climate normals to describe long-term steady averages in our climate system. For decades, the choice of the word normal was benign, and there wasn't much difference between the idea of normal conditions and average conditions. But back then, the communications of climate scientists weren't critical to public discourse, and we could expect some semblance of stability in our climate system. Neither of those conditions holds true today. Our climate system has, in many ways, broken free from what one could realistically describe as a stable, normal state. It is not normal to have 44 consecutive years of above-average temperatures. It's not normal for hurricane after hurricane to undergo rapid intensification or for wildfires to jump over freeways. However, recent research suggests that it's not historical periods that form our internal baseline of what is normal when it comes to climate. Rather, it's our experience with weather in recent years. So when young people delight in a spring that comes earlier each year or don't bat an eye at smoky skies in September, it's likely because such events are no longer as noteworthy as they'd be to their parents or grandparents. They're just part of what's expected. But learning to expect climate events that once would have been exceptional doesn't lessen their harm. The social normalization of climate extremes could make it more difficult for us to truly recognize the danger of the climate crisis. So the words that scientists and scientific organizations use to describe current climate conditions matter more than they ever have before. Uh, The scientific community's continued use of the word normal says to the public, hey, this is how things are, and this is what's normal. And I don't want anyone to think that. A more accurate term might be, quote-unquote, climate averages. But we climate scientists could also go a step further and call these averages what they really are, climate abnormals. I'll end on a hopeful note with something that should have been normalized a long time ago. 
The Biden administration recently announced a pledge to reduce emissions by about 50% below 2005 levels by the year 2030, so just nine years from now. This could hopefully usher in a new era of weaning ourselves off fossil fuels, building out the infrastructure, systems, and workforces we need to power our society with clean energy sources, and centering the need for environmental justice in everything we do. We're going to keep adjusting our sense of what's normal in the years ahead, but the United States' new stance on climate suggests maybe that a new normal is within our reach. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Special thanks to Elizabeth Irvin. Our science segment was brought to you by Dr. Christy Dahl. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Additional editing by Omari Spears. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Thanks. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and see you next time. <laughs>